Some major news from Israel, the definition of who is a Jew. Oh, yeah, a lot to cover. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I'm going to put on my teaching hat today and really dig deep on an important subject. Do my best to give you insight on something major that happened in Israel this week. Welcome to our thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast here on the Line of Fire. The number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884, with any Jewish-related question that you have. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. Uh, This news has been all over the world, not just in Jewish press, but in secular press as well. Major story in the New York Times says this. New York Times announces that there has been a change in the conversion laws. Israeli court says converts to non-Orthodox Judaism can claim citizenship. People who convert in Israel to reform a conservative Judaism have a right to citizenship, the Supreme Court ruled, chipping at the power of Orthodox authorities that see them as non-Jewish. All right, this is very big news, and let me explain why. Judaism today is divided into three main branches, Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Then you have, within Orthodoxy, what's called Modern Orthodox, that would be to the left, left left-wing Orthodox, and then you have ultra-Orthodox, that would be to the right. And then on the Reform end, you can go even further to the left to Reconstructionist Judaism. But these are the three main branches, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. Now, when you hear conservative, don't think conservative socially, morally, like I'm a conservative versus a liberal. It has a different meaning. It means conserving or preserving certain Jewish traditions. This is what happened over the centuries. You basically had for many, many centuries what you call traditional Judaism. So these would be Jews who believe what was in the Bible and believe what was in rabbinic literature and who submitted to the authority of the rabbis. They would be observing the Sabbath, keeping the dietary laws, living by the traditions. And then those who broke away would be more secular, anything just from some irreligious person to a worldly person to an atheist, but that was it. You were either a traditional Jew or you were not, And broadly speaking. Then a couple hundred years ago in Germany, as, as the Jewish community was coming out of, of having to be closed in kind of ghetto-like situations, just living among themselves, and were getting exposed more to the communities and the world around them, that some of the Jewish leaders said, you know, we have to be more enlightened we have to be more understanding. We, we, we have to recognize that culture has changed. And yes, the scripture is holy, but it's not, it's not God's word the way you thought it was, or the rabbinic traditions are not that inspired. And we, you know, we have to pick and choose and recognize you know, the dietary laws they really don't carry and, 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 and other things, you know, saying that God chose Israel uniquely, that's ethnocentric, and we have to be more broad-minded. So this major reform movement came, and in its, in its origins, it was— very extreme. You even had uh, synagogues that would meet on Sunday rather than Saturday. 
And then they brought musical instruments in, which is something that the synagogues didn't have over the centuries. And then there would almost be a flaunting of, of violating the dietary laws and things like that. So Reform Judaism began pushing back against what it saw as, as an extreme, legalistic, outdated, outmoded, kind of small-minded Judaism. That's how they looked at traditional Judaism. And reformers said, hey, we're in the spirit of the ancient rabbis because they were reformers as well. Well, a little over 100 years ago, there was a push against that. But, but this was the dilemma. You had Jewish intellectuals from traditional backgrounds, but they did not believe that Moses wrote the five books of Moses the way Jewish tradition says. According to Jewish tradition, God dictated the five books of Moses through Moses. And they, they respected their traditions and honored them and realized that there are many beautiful traditions and that these traditions helped keep the Jewish people separated from the nations and with a unique focus on the God of Israel. But because of their intellectual beliefs that they did not hold the same, what they would call fundamentalist views of scripture and tradition, that, that they couldn't agree with the traditional Jews, the, the Orthodox Jews, but they couldn't agree with the Reformed Jews because they thought the Reformed Jews were just losing everything. So they said, we must be enlightened, but conserve our traditions, hence the name conservative. Well, over the century, conservative Judaism has gone more and more to the left, so that really you have on the left, conservative, and then to the left of that, Reformed Judaism, and then on the right, Orthodox, which as I said, can be all the way ultra-Orthodox or less so modern Orthodox. For example, Ben Shapiro would be a modern Orthodox Jew, so he wears the yarmulke, he is a traditional Jew, but he would not be what you'd call a Haredi Jew, ultra-Orthodox with the long beard, black coat, and, and studying in yeshiva 14 hours a day, that kind of thing. So over the years, as the modern state of Israel was formed, and by the way, I was bar mitzvah at a conservative Jewish synagogue on Long Island, in 1968, and it was really wishy-washy. It, it really was. It, in other words, I, I learned some Hebrew. I had to go to Hebrew school for, for a few years, a couple of days after class each week. And, and you know, after our school was done, we'd walk over to the, to the synagogue and, and go to Hebrew school there together with, with my Jewish friends. And we'd learn some Hebrew, and we'd learn Jewish history and, and things like that. But when I was bar mitzvah, when I was bar mitzvah in 1968, and I, I read a portion from, from the Torah, for the prophet, you know, wh whatever I was given to read, and I memorized it. You had to be able to chant it, so, you know, read through. And, but no one said, all right, now, Mike, I want you to read this in English so you know what you're reading. And it didn't dawn on me to read it in English. I didn't even know what I was, I was just chanting words. So for me, my bar mitzvah, the big part, it was more of a social event than a spiritual event because the conservative Judaism in which I was raised was really very wishy-washy. And, and that's why in conservative and reformed Judaism, there's a higher degree of assimilation that those raised in that will leave their Jewish faith or background, those raised in a very traditional home. Let's, that's going to be the same with any religious group. So with the founding of the modern state of Israel, certain arrangements were made with Orthodox rabbis, and they would have certain authority over religious matters, over dietary matters, over Sabbath and things like that. And the, the nation would operate the way it operated. So there'd be freedom for people, but 
there was an arrangement with the Orthodox community, say, if there's going to be a wedding for it to be a Jewish wedding, then you have Orthodox Jews presiding over it. So what's happened is that Orthodox Judaism, as Judaism, is the accepted Judaism of the nation, meaning that it is the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox rabbis that will approve your hotel if you're going to be having weddings and events and things like that and, and, and bringing food. Do you meet rabbinic standards of kashrut, of dietary law? This is, this is the way that it will be laid out, okay? Um, a marriage has to be performed by an Orthodox rabbi. You say, well, I'm not Orthodox. Well, you go to another country. Many Israelis will go to Cyprus nearby, get married there, and come back. And then the marriage is recognized. You go to another country, get married, and come back because they don't want to do it under an Orthodox rabbi. So there is a degree of, of control that the Orthodox have had. And while they recognize that Reform and conservative Jews are still Jews, they do not recognize it as valid Judaism. So the idea that you want to convert to Judaism and become a citizen of Israel, right? So let's say you're a Gentile, a Gentile Christian, you turn away from that faith, you, you become an Orthodox Jew, convert to Orthodox Judaism, marry an Orthodox Jew, and now you want to come to Israel, they would look at that and say, okay, that's a valid conversion. You've been tested, you've been tried, you've been put through this, you've been interviewed, we recognize it as valid. Reform or conservative conversion, they wouldn't recognize that. They say, that's wishy-washy, that's like nothing. You haven't really demonstrated Jewishness or understanding what it means to be a Jew, so we're not going to recognize those conversions because if you are a Jew, you have the right to return. If your mother's Jewish, you have the right to, to return and become a, a citizen in Israel, in Israel. This can be demonstrated you've converted to another religion. So what if you convert to Judaism? You have the right to become an Israeli citizen. Up until now, if it was a reform or, or conservative conversion, the answer was no. But now the Supreme Court, after a years-long battle, has said yes. So Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews are very upset over this. Um, let's look at this article in Yeshiva World. So this is Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox publication online. And it says this, Israel's Supreme Court recognizes reform, conservative, giur, it's the Hebrew word for conversion, in Israel. Let's scroll down into this article a little bit and, and see what it has to say. Israel's Supreme Court ruled on Monday, so this past Monday, that people converted by the reform and conservative movements in Israel will be recognized as Jewish and can become Israeli citizens through the law of return. The ruling comes after a 15-year legal battle following petitions to the Supreme Court in 2005 demanding that Israeli citizenship be granted to 12 residents who converted to the reform and conservative movements in Israel. The Supreme Court ruled in 1988 that non-Orthodox conversions performed outside of Israel are recognized but did not recognize non-Orthodox conversions performed in Israel. Israel's chief rabbis and religious politicians slammed the court's decision and promised that the ruling will be overturned. The Likud party, Netanyahu's party, also condemned the ruling. Chief Rabbi Israel Rav Yitzhak, Harav Yitzhak Yosef said the decision of the Supreme Court is very unfortunate and seriously harms the shlemus, the, the well-being of Am Yisrael, of the people of Israel. What the reform and conservative called giur, conversion, is nothing but a falsification of Judaism and means bringing thousands of Goyim, Gentiles, into Am Yisrael, into the people of Israel. Chief Rabbi Harav David Laos, so there's, ortho, there's Sephardic and Ashkenazi chief rabbis. He said, whoever converted through reform and similar movements are not Jews, and no decision of the Supreme Court will change this fact. 
He said it is unfortunate that through its decision, the Supreme Court approves flooding Israel with immigrants who have nothing to do with Judaism. Every Israeli citizen needs to ask himself in this said evening, how is the state of Israel a Jewish state when every foreigner can become a citizen? Obviously, many would challenge those views strongly, say that's the very bigotry and small-mindedness we're fighting, and how dare that we refuse someone who identifies as a Jew and converted to Judaism through reform and conservative circles. That's the very bigotry that's destroying our country. So obviously this is a hot issue in Israel, and there has been a lot of outrage over a video that presents non-Orthodox Jews as dogs? Yeah, we'll, we'll play that for you. We come back. You'll hear it on radio on, uh, in Hebrew, but we'll tell you the content of it, what's going on. Others will be able to watch on our Facebook and YouTube feeds. We'll get your calls in a little while. 866-34-TRUTH. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. Here's the number to call, 866 866- 34Truth, 866-348-7884. Look at this headline from the Times of Israel. Times of Israel says this, Haredi Party, so Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jewish, Haredi Party likens reform and conservative conducts to dogs with kipot, kipot meaning yarmulkes, head coverings. Uh, Check out this video. It's, It's very sophisticatedly done in terms of clever and all this, and it's by ultra-Orthodox Jews and obviously terribly degrading to other Jews. Uh, let's, let's listen and watch. Yeah, so instead of a bar mitzvah, you have a bark mitzvah. And then image after image of dogs with, with yarmulkes, with side curls, with taliot, with, with uh, uh, prayer shawls, uh, even one saying, hey, here's the grandmother of the rabbi, and it's, it's a dog studying holy books. And then the end saying, it's, you, you need United Torah Judaism, which is one of the, the major Haredi parties in Israel to, to lead the way, you know, to preserve true Judaism. Uh, again, you could just imagine the level of outrage looking down Haaretz, which is famously liberal, historic Israeli publication. What does that headline say? Netanyahu allies compare reformed Jews to dogs in racist election ads. Yeah. And, and again, plays the video there as well. Facebook takes down video as Israel's election campaign turns vile in wake of top courts ruling on Jewish conversions. Likud leans right 
strongly and works with the ultra-Orthodox parties who have been strong supporters standing together with Likud for the government and for the current coalition. There's about to be yet another election. This is the fourth in just a few years and hard to say what's going to come out of, of this next election. But this is the level of acrimony within Israel right now and, and the level of how ultra-Orthodox Jews look at these other Jews. Because they say, hey, look, you can't call this Judaism. You're not strictly observing the Sabbath. You're not strictly following the traditions of the rabbis. You're not keeping the dietary laws. You're not celebrating the, the, the feasts and holy days in, in full accordance with rabbinic laws. So how do you call yourself practices of Judaism? Yeah, you're, you're ethnically Jewish, but you're not practicing Judaism. So let me, let me take you behind the scenes just to help you see how a religious Jew looks at this. There's an article uh, posted in uh, the Yeshiva World. Again, this is an Orthodox Jewish website. Can from people, from meaning uh, Orthodox practicing religious Jews, can from people use reform and conservative synagogues, a halachic analysis, meaning a legal analysis. So I'm just going to scroll through some of this. This was written a couple years back by Rabbi Yair Hoffman. He said, someone once compared the topic under discussion to the selling of, Israeli, of Israel bonds at UC Berkeley. It is fraught with controversy. If one brings up using non-Orthodox synagogues, the response from both sides is almost a, a vociferous reaction and one jam-packed with deeply rooted emotion. Are they really so intolerant that they cannot even walk into a reformed Jewish building? How pathetic. You know, Hitler killed all Jews. Response, are you telling me that even if the foot is completely glot, ultra-Orthodox, they won't even use the social hall? Horrible, just horrible. The, the Orthodox are completely out of control. Another response, what's wrong with the reform section of the Kotel, of the wall? So he says, the truth is that one cannot really understand another person without having walked a mile in his or her shoes. The non-Orthodox need to understand the Orthodox. So he says, to do so, a metaphor might come in handy. No one argued that John McCain, who passed away this week, so a few years back, truly loved America. He loved what it stood for, what it stands for. He loved this country's ideals. He loved America's principles, its morals, its standards. Two weeks ago, when Governor Cuomo made the horrific faux pas of saying that America was never great, his largely Democrat liberal audience actually booed him. To those with any grasp of history and morality, America's greatness was and is indisputable. The fact that our grandparents and great-uncles fought the evil that was the Nazi regime and freed a continent subject to unspeakable tyranny reflects our greatness. Although it may be hard for the non-Orthodox to understand that the Orthodox love Torah true Judaism. They love what it stood for and what it stands for. They love the Torah's ideals, its principles, its morals, and its standards. A rejection of these principles of Judaism to an Orthodox Jew is tantamount to rejecting the ideals and principles of America to an American patriot. So he says, there are five major principles under discussion. One, it is the deeply orthodox belief, deeply held belief that there is a creator who created the world. Two, this kind and benevolent creator rewards good and punishes evil. Three, this creator, Hashem, used the Torah as the blueprint of the universe. Four, this creator endowed us with mitzvahs, commandments, both positive and negative ones, in order to benefit us. Five, he endowed us with a badge of honor, the observance of Shabbos, Sabbath when we declare these ideals to the world that Hashem created it all and desires us to cleave to and emulate him. And he says a rejection of any of these principles as a stab in the heart of the precious legacy that is the birthright of Sinai, what the Orthodox hold so dear, 
Imagine, if you will, a club of racist Americans that rejects Jefferson's immortal phrase, all men are created equal. Would a true patriot either rent or allow classes to be held in their building? Picture further organization, organization X that denies others their inalienable rights to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. On principle, would any self-respecting American attend a birthday party in the building of such an organization? They wouldn't. And while the overwhelming majority of reformed conservative Jews do feel a connection to Hashem and to Judaism, they don't really know that their organizations reject many of these five aforementioned principles. So we give some examples. One reformed rabbi, John L. Rossoff, senior rabbi of Temple Israel of Hollywood, California, writes on the premier website, <laughs> excuse me, of reformed Judaism, that he does not believe in the God of the Bible. This is a rejection of principles three, four, and five, and quite possibly one and two as well. When the conservative movement voted to, a dry, to approve driving on Shabbos to attend synagogues in the 1950s, this is a rejection of principles three, four, and five. In 2006, when the conservative movement's committee on Jewish law and standards declared that an entire section of the laws of family purity no longer applies to this continued, applies this continued the rejection of Torah true Judaism. The orthodox objection is to the organizational rejection of the ideals. But in no way did the Orthodox reject the reform or conservative Jew. Conflating and obscuring this distinction is a tactic of some of the less ethical members of the reform and conservative clergy. The purpose of this falsehood is to rally the masses against the Orthodox and to draw away attention from the organizational rejection of thousands of years of Torah true belief. So he says, let's get back to the headline, the halakha, the legal ruling itself about using the buildings of reform and conservative synagogues. The Maharam Sheikh, so uh, Maharam being uh, an abbreviation for uh, Morena Harav, uh, yeah, Morena Harav, so our great rabbi teacher, Sheikh, and then with his first name, uh, writes that praying or spending time in a synagogue that does not conform to Torah law is a Torah prohibition. The Gemara, so speaking of the Talmud, in Yoma 70a, explains that the appearance of doing a mitzvah is considered like doing a mitzvah on account of the verse, Barov um, Hadras Melech, the greater the number of people, the more glory to the king. Since praying in a place that does not conform to Shulchan Aruch, Jewish law code, is considered by the Rambam, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, as a sin, even appearing there at the times they pray is forbidden, and he goes on and on. So he's going to give one ruling after another after another, including the, the leading legal authority of Orthodox Jews in America of the last generation, uh, Rob Moshe Feinstein, that he gave these rulings. So saying, hey, we recognize that you're Jews, and yes, Hitler would have killed you as Jews, but we don't recognize what you are practicing as Judaism. Therefore, we cannot share your buildings. That would be the Orthodox and ultra, especially the ultra-Orthodox viewpoint. So the question is now, if you recognize a reformer, conservative Jew as a Jew, then shouldn't that give them the right to return? The argument would be, well, we don't recognize the conversion as being valid, therefore we don't see them as truly Jewish, and on and on it goes. I, I share all this because it's big news, and, and I want you to understand why the controversy exists and you could see each side. The one side saying, I converted to Judaism. This is the Judaism I know. I now worship the God of Israel and, and follow certain traditions different than I used to live. And I want to live in Israel as a Jew. How dare you stop me? 
What kind of state is this? And the other side is the only way that we can preserve being a Jewish state is by having a real Judaism. And if you erode the foundations and the fundamentals, it'll be nothing left. And the nation will be overrun by Gentiles claiming to be Jews who don't even live as Jews. So that's the situation. How is it going to affect the elections? I don't know. I haven't dug deep enough into the data and what's being discussed to understand that and haven't seen fully the reaction of the Israeli public if we get an idea of where they stand, who they're standing with on this. I can say that many Israelis resent the control that the Orthodox have. I can tell you that. They resent the fact they have to have an Orthodox rabbi perform the wedding. They resent the fact that certain restrictions are put on them at certain times of the day or year. So those are issues. We shall see how this plays out. We come right back. Straight to your calls. 866-34-TRUTH. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Now, come on, can, can you... Can you listen to that without tapping your feet? Not, I got to the left of me on the other side of our studio here, two drummers, and I don't, yeah, they're, they're actually moving around there, but it's, I, I can't listen to that without tapping my feet and my spirit jumping. Welcome to the Line of Fire. It's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We want to go to your calls, 866-34-TRUTH, and we'll start with Vadim in Guadalajara, Mexico. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Hey, hey could you do me a favor? Could could you yeah. say the name of your city and country the way it's properly said in a proper Spanish accent? Guadalajara, Mexico. Yeah, that's it. All right, thank you. What's your question, sir? Only my country is Ukraine, but that's okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but that's hey, hey, listen. That's that's Ukrainian Mexican. It's better than my American. Uh, Spanish, so go ahead. <laughs> My question is this, Dr. Brown. Uh, I understand, uh, how would you explain the, the fact that in Ezekiel, in the vision of Ezekiel of the Third Temple, he speaks of a sin sacrifice as being present in the Third Temple? What kind of sins would those sin sacrifices atone for? Nam- namely, like Ezekiel 43, verses 18 through 27, there's certain laws of uh, sacrifices, and in- including sin sacrifices as well. Yep. Yeah, so it's an important question, sir, and one that I think any person seriously studying Scripture and having a Christian outlook on Scripture would, would ask. So uh, let me break this down in, in, in several lines, okay? First, in context, it seems the expectation was Ezekiel 40 through 48 would be fulfilled when the Jews returned from Babylonian exile. It even indicates that Ezekiel himself would be involved in the temple services, from which later Jewish teachers said, well, that must point to the resurrection then. But he was supposed to show them the plans, the people in exile, they'd be ashamed. And then when you read other passages from the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, it it seemed as if 
when the Jewish people would return from exile, that God would bring national repentance, and then the temple would be built, and it would be glorious, and the nations would come streaming in. That was the expectation. Of course, it didn't happen. So what we talk about is the third temple. When Ezekiel was receiving this message, he would have thought it was the second temple. So that's the first thing. How exactly will it be fulfilled? Will it be fulfilled as a third temple, literally? Question mark. Second issue is the dimensions are different than Solomon's temple or the tabernacle of Moses. So how could it be the same Torah law? That creates problems for rabbinic Jews, for traditional Jews. And there's a a statement in the Talmud that, that one man worked on it for night after night after night, just you'd say like burn the midnight candle for months and months and months and finally figured out how to resolve all the apparent contradictions, but we lost his data. So all that to say, this presents problems for a traditional Jew. So historical fulfillment, question mark, presents problems for a traditional Jew. Thirdly, there are Christians who say this was a vision given to Ezekiel as a priest and it was the vision of glorious restoration. That's how God gave it to him as a priest, but its ultimate fulfillment will be a spiritual fulfillment. In other words, not a literal temple, not literal sacrifices, but rather something of a spiritual import, and we should understand the whole thing spiritually. And that's not my own view, but there are Christians who hold to that. So that gets me now to options four or five, or I should say points four or five. The first issue being historic fulfillment, second issue being contradictions with the current Torah dimensions, third issue being perhaps a future spiritual fulfillment. So to me, there there are two other options. One option is that just as the sacrifices under the Sinai covenant looked forward to the cross and anticipated the once-for-all sacrifice of the Messiah, that the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, which is when we believe the third temple will be built, will look back. So just as one look forward, the other will look back. And remember, the Jewish nation will be a priestly nation teaching the other nations about the God of Israel during this time. Uh, Is it in harmony with what Hebrews says about one sacrifice for all and no more after that? That's That's a valid question to raise. But there are some Christians who say, hey, one look forward, the other will be looking back. The other option, and this is something I've discussed with Professor Richard Averbeck, who is a Sumerian scholar, but uh, along with that, in terms of Old Testament scholarship, one of the, the top evangelical Christians in terms of understanding the Levitical laws and the purposes of these things. And in his view, the, the sacrifices under the Sinai Covenant primarily had to do with ritual cleansing and defilement and things like that, and that they pointed towards the cross for ultimate atonement. So it's no problem to have sacrifices because they're not competing with what Jesus did. In other words, they're dealing with other aspects of ritual impurity or uncleanness or sin, but not in terms of once and for all reconciliation and getting right with God. So that's another view that should be explored. And, and obviously you don't have the equivalent, say, of the Day of Atonement and the exact same sacrifices being offered for the same purpose. Why not? And then there are other rabbinic traditions that said it in the world to come, that the only sacrifices offered will be thank, Thanksgiving offerings be, because we'll be living in a new day and era. So those are possibilities. And what I'm sure about is what God did through Yeshua on the cross. What I'm sure about is the overall harmony of the testimony of Scripture. Exactly how this will play out, I'm not sure. 
And I do believe there'll be a literal temple, and that could well be with literal sacrifices. If so, they will either point back to the cross or be unrelated to what Jesus did on the cross. Last point. Uh, Oh, two years ago, maybe, I was really thinking about this a lot, praying afresh over these passages and asking God to give me insight. Then one of my colleagues, one of my closest friends, emails me and says, Mike, has God given you any insight on Ezekiel 40 through 48? I said, I'm just praying over it afresh. I went from there uh, to be at a major conference in Kansas City, and there were some brothers there. Hey, would you like us to spend some time praying with you and, and, and praying prophetically? So as they're praying over me, two of them had, had words out of the blue and knowing nothing of this that God was going to give me insights into Ezekiel's temple. So I don't have those yet. <laughs> I didn't get them yet. <laughs> but, but I shared with you what I, what I do know and understand. Got it. Well, uh, I, but what, what about uh, the fact that Paul in Acts 21, he does pay the expenses for the Nazarites to bring sin sacrifices as well as part of the completion of the vow. Right, right. So that, that would be in harmony with Professor Averbeck. In other words, that sacrifices were fine and had a certain role and function and did not ultimately bring us forgiveness of sin or final reconciliation with God or the removal of a guilty conscience. That only comes through the Messiah's blood. So it was no problem for Paul to do this because it wasn't contradictory. So that, that, would, that would go hand in hand. Hey, thank you, sir. For the question and uh when my book comes out secrets of ezekiel's temple we'll, we'll make sure to tell you about it okay yes please. yeah and by the way for those just listening on radio or podcast i said that with a big smile i'm not actually working on the book right now but if god gives me insight hey i'd love to do it all right our friend manny in brooklyn how you doing man hi dr brown yeah uh, hey, quick question. What do you think about the Supreme Court ruling in Israel? Hmm. Uh, actually, it's interesting. Uh, I, I think there's just a dilemma. Uh, a, a while back, what's his name? John Kerry, he said, Israel could either be a Jewish state or democratic. It couldn't be both. And uh, many people took that to be anti-Semitic and all that stuff. But sadly, I agree with him. Either you build a state on Jewish law, on halacha, on, on as it's supposed to be, you know, or you build it secularly, and then, and then you just make whatever rules you want, maybe like America, where you have a constitution, and you have the, uh, you know, the rights for everyone, you have freedom of speech, you have other stuff, but I don't think you can really have, you know, eat your cake and, and, and have it, you know, at the same time. You know, it's, it's an interesting point. Uh, and, and friends, for those who don't know our, our friend Manny, he's an Orthodox Jew that's uh, looking into different things and dialoguing with me and taking issue with some things I've, I've written and taught. But what's interesting is Israel exists as a Jewish state more or less in the way conservative and reformed Jews are Jews. In other words, it's broadly Jewish. It, it recognizes the Seventh-day Sabbath and has the calendar go around that, but it's not it's not religiously Jewish on every level. You know, you can eat unkosher food in different settings and things like that. So it is kind of interesting. Anyway, so, so back to you. What's on your mind today? Um, well, I wanted to continue talking about Daniel, the ninth chapter, but I'm, I'm getting a little nervous that maybe the audience is getting bored of that topic and maybe they want me to move on. So I, I, I figured I'd ask you either, either I talk about Daniel 9 or Isaiah 53. What, what do you think? Well, let's, let's go to Isaiah 53. Uh, yeah, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's do it. And, and I, again... Uh, I think our listeners enjoy our conversation and find it educational. And mm-hmm. on your end, you're getting a lot of people to pray for you, so that's good. Yeah, let's, so let's, uh, 
Let's start in Isaiah 53. What, what are your issues yeah. with, with that? Um, so I've seen certain things you've, you've spoken about. You know, you, famously the anti-missionary uh, point, like Tuffy Singer likes to rattle off the servant called Israel throughout, you know, like uh, the, the chapters beforehand. And uh, you pointed out in some of your conversations, like with Rabbi Blumenthal, which you've debated before that, like Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 50 and, and uh, 49, there's a servant who's an individual. So as we're coming closer to uh, the chapter 53, it's more zooming into an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I mean, I, I give a look at chapter 49, and it seems to me like the first verse is talking in first person. And, you know, the, it seems like the servant is writing this passage himself. And chapter 50, it's also spoken in the first person. And it sounds like it's the prophet here who's talking about himself and this individual, whoever he is in, 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 in 49 and 50 is someone alive at the time that the book of Isaiah was published. So I don't see how that helps interpreting the servant as being the Messiah who wasn't yet born uh, when, when the book of Isaiah went into print. Well, would you agree that it refutes the idea that the servant is always Israel in these chapters in Isaiah? I, I think it would definitely leave an opening to uh, maybe interpreting it as being talking about the prophet talking now, and that it could be perhaps uh, not just uh, the nation as a whole, but certain individuals within the nation. Uh, Got it. Okay. I, I highly doubt that the context could say then suddenly it means every servant ever lived, and, and you know, there could be anyone in the future, so it could be, I don't know, maybe me, for example. I, I don't think that's the case. All right, but so we agree, though, that it refutes the idea of counter-missionaries like Tovia Singer that the servant is always Israel in the preceding chapters. You're saying, no, some of these, it seems to be the prophet himself, right? We'll pick up there on the other side of the break and then get to some more calls. Stay right here. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thirdly Jewish Thursday on the line of fire. So back to our friend Manny in Brooklyn. So the first thing that I want to do is dismiss this idea that the servant is always Israel, which, which I've heard since I was a new believer. Uh, so mm-hmm. in chapters 41 to 53, that the servant is always Israel, that's, that's clearly false. Or even to say, if it's not the nation, that it's a group, it's the righteous remnant, well, well that's false, because 49 and 50 indisputably are an individual. And yes, rabbinic interpretation would largely say it's the prophet speaking there, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, Isaiah 42 is another passage that if you look at Radak, for example, or Targum, mm-hmm. they understand that to be the Messiah. So right. that would be another individual. And in each case, and there's a parallel between 42 and 49, because this individual is called to be a, a light to the nations and a covenant for his own people, Israel. So that's the first thing to, to lay out and to, to demolish that, that false statement. Here's the second thing. Uh, is it possible that the prophet spoke these things of himself and was, was even the initial subject of Isaiah 53, this individual who, who was suffering for the sins of others, 
and yet it finds its fulfillment in the Messiah because whoever that individual was, it didn't bring any type of national healing or anything. And it does say that at the end of 5213 that he'll be highly exalted in a way that will mm-hmm. startle the nations. That obviously didn't happen with whoever wrote those words. So even if it was initially the prophet himself speaking it, I would say they find their fulfillment in the Messiah. Yeah, but we, I thought your argument was you find contextual proof that it's talking about an individual which, which is the Messiah, but uh, I, guess, I guess the point I'm trying to make is there's no contextual proof, really, that we're talking about a servant Messiah. The only thing we see is servant prophet, servant Israel, and in chapter 42, I mean, it, it's not totally clear. Rashi there would interpret, you know, uh, it to be Israel, and in chapter 49... Uh, the prophet is told that, you know, you, Israel, are my servant. And the way I would interpret that is uh, being that God is telling every individual Jew and to, to the prophet himself, you are, you, are an, you are an Israelite and you're my servant. And then later on in the chapter where, it's, where God speaks in second person, saying, you know, I'm going to make you into a light for the nations and, and you're gonna, I'm going to make you a covenant for, for the people. I think that could be interpreted talking about Israel as a whole. You know what I'm saying? So... I, I think, and also chapter 42 is pretty far from 53, so, but, but the bottom line is, I don't see any contextual proof from any of the servant things that's referring to the Messiah. Yeah, so, so here's the contextual proof. In the 42nd chapter, his teaching will be sought out by the ends of the world, the ends of the earth, and he mm-hmm. will be a light to the nations, and he will set the captives free, namely the captive Israelites, mm-hmm. he will set the captives free. 49 is, is a clear parallel to that. Some of the identical language is used, right. which would indicate that whoever's being spoken of in 42, which some rabbinic interpreters say is the Messiah, because who else is going to do what he does? Right. I mean, this is a massive global mm-hmm. mission. 49 speaks of the same one, but he seems to have failed in his mission because his own people, Israel, are rejecting him. And yet God says, no, no, not only will you succeed in regathering the exiles, but you will also be a light to the nations. Then the Mm -hmm. 50th chapter speaks of the same individual beaten. So why can't it be the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet in a prophetic way? Why can't it be the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet in terms of one to come? So I have clear parallels between 42, 49, 50. Then 52, 13 starts by saying that he will be highly exalted. I mean, extreme terms that even the Midrash says higher than Abraham, Moses, and the ministering angels, that kings will shut their mouths over him. And you're talking about messianic proportions. And that's why the Midrash and, and Moshe al-Sheikh 500 years ago said, we all interpret this with, with reference to the Messiah, 52, 13 to 15, those three verses. Mm-hmm. And then it now continues to talk same thing, like 49, 50, reject it, same thing as 50, beaten mm-hmm. violently. We must understand what he was doing, yet it brings redemption. He dies and then continues living. So if all I had was those four chapters, 42, 49, 50, and then in the 52, 13 to 53, 12, I'd say, you tell me who that's talking about. You tell me who did right. this, who was rejected by his people, suffered a violent death, rose from the dead, has become uh-huh. a light to the nations, and will one day be even more fully exalted for the, to the shock of the whole world and to the astonishment of the Jewish community. If that's not uh-huh. textual evidence of the Messiah spelled out, I don't know what is. Well, again, as, as I've demonstrated, chapter 49 and chapter 50 is spoken in the first person, so it's probably someone who already existed. No, 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 you, you missed my, you, you didn't answer my question. You're saying it's impossible for the Holy Spirit to speak through an individual on behalf of a later individual? 
it's, it's not impossible, but the, the, the text seems to be talking about some, the author himself. But it didn't happen. About someone who's not born. But it didn't happen with that author. But there's no time limit. There's no time limit here. Unlike, let's say, Daniel Nine, where you try to have a time limit. There's no time limit here, so it could keep. Ah, but so so sorry. So just to be clear, and and we'll continue. Okay, we'll we'll continue. God willing, in in a few weeks. We're just starting on Isaiah 53, but obviously got to be fair to other callers. So we'll we'll continue. But you're saying you have no problem with this being spoken with reference to the prophet, so 2,700 years ago, but it still will happen. And I'm saying, why can't it be the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet on behalf of the Messiah? Is, is, which is more logical? And isn't this a messianic mission? Doesn't this comport with the mission of the Messiah? So if I see this, Isaiah 42, which again, some rabbinic interpretation says is the Messiah, then I see the same thing in 49. Well, that tells me it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet, the voice of the Messiah. Messiah's preexistent too, isn't he? All right, so we'll, God willing, we'll continue, Manny. All right, thank you, sir, as always, for the call. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Mary in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the line of fire. Got your radio turned down there, Mary? Uh, all right, tell you what, uh, Shelly will try to help you when we get a second here. Uh, let's go to CJ in Boise, Idaho. Welcome to the line of fire. And thank you for taking my call, of course. Um, so I wanted to ask a question about the uh, divine name, Yudhevave. Um, so I, I'm, oh, I'm only a Hebrew learner, I do want to be clear, so I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, more, you know, expertise or anything like that than I actually have or anything like that. But um, I've been looking through arguments for Yehovah versus Yahweh, and I, it seems to me that everything, the evidence seems to indicate Yehovah. It doesn't seem like, it seems like there's like 11 some odd rabbis who say it's Yehovah. I can't find a single one from the ancient times that says Yahweh. There's numerous texts that trans, are like, uh, script, what would you call that? Uh, manuscripts, manuscripts that have it Yehovah, but none that seem to have Yahweh. Uh, and then some of the grammar rules I'm starting to learn, like, for example, a a, 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 a hey at the end of a word, almost always indicates an ah vowel. I can't think of any situation where it indicates an a vowel, like Yahweh. Yeah, so, yeah, um, so just to jump, yeah, jump in, um, thank you for saying that you're just learning Hebrew, because there yeah, are, there's an endless line of words that ends with, with uh, the, the hey showing sigol, so more, for example, teacher, all right? It's just... It's a very, very common ending. It's, it's extremely common. So let's, let's throw that out, okay? The second thing is that all ancient inscriptions that have names with the divine name in it will follow something closer to the Yahweh pattern. In other words, the Masoretic manuscripts had the vowels put in them many, many centuries later. There are some manuscripts that have no vowels written because the name is considered too sacred to pronounce. Others have the vowels of Adonai written, and then the vowels of Adonai combined with the consonants of, of uh, Yahweh come up with Yehovah or Yehovah or Jehovah. But that was Christian scholars in the Enlightenment period that started reading the Hebrew and didn't understand what was happening there and got it wrong. You will not find uh, traditional rabbis or traditional rabbinic literature over the centuries identifying the divine name as Jehovah. 
that that simply won't be found. So are are you mainly reading stuff by Nehemiah Gordon or or folks like that? Uh, Nehemiah Gordon is definitely one of my primary sources. Yes. Yeah. So what what you need to do is the thorough refutations of Nehemiah Gordon. The the, the problem is that um, some of the, now Nehemiah Gordon's an academic guy himself, but some are written in in um, such academic language that they may be harder to follow. But even if you just do something like this, go go to Jewish Encyclopedia, okay? Jewish Encyclopedia, it's an online encyclopedia, and and type in, I think they'll have Jehovah, if not type in Tetragrammaton, and they'll even show you with Masoretic vocalization when, when words occur in, in different, um, uh, when you have a grammatical form with a preposition before or one word following another, that it changes vocalizations and indicates that no, 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 this Yehovah thing was was never ever seen or known. The again, the ancient evidence of inscriptions, where we have more full forms written out in in what would be called a syllabary. So it's not just a, a consonant, but a consonant and a vowel. They would all support the the Yahweh reading and then the shorter uh, Yahoo form, uh, and not Jehovah. Again, it's nothing that we divide over, but uh, Jewish Encyclopedia, just in with Detrachramidin or Jehovah, which you'll find there, one or the other, you'll even see some grammatical arguments there that if you can follow them, will refute this idea. But keep learning, keep studying, and as, as you learn some more stuff, then, then give me another call. We can continue the conversation. Hey, friends, may the Lord's blessing and grace be yours. Let's remember to pray for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God. Open the hearts and minds of your Jewish people to Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah.